I always tell people murderers are not born, they're bred. And when we teach our kids by not teaching them, they're going to they're going to revert to the lowest mean, which is violence. Doug Knoll founded the Prison of Peace Project. Knoll teaches hardcore inmates how to de-escalate an angry, emotional person in 90 seconds or less. It's a skill that we could all benefit from learning in this era of violence. Hello, this is Robert Riggs taking you inside the crime scene tape in this episode of the True Crime Reporter podcast. Besides telling interesting crime stories, it is also my mission to educate. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know we live in an epidemic of violence. School shootings, mass shootings at malls and public places, road rage murders, senseless violent acts, and as I've reported, outlaw motorcycle gangs shooting each other in broad daylight on interstate highways. Some days I think the world has gone crazy. Doug Knoll is here to explain the causes and offer a solution that's working in prisons. The California lawyer felt a calling in 2010 to create the Prison of Peace Project at the Valley State Prison for Women in Chochilla, California, the largest women's prison in the world. Here's my interview with Doug Knoll. Doug Knoll, from your experience, give us an impression or try to understanding of why there is so much anger in society these days of be it road rage, you name it. Well, Robert, I think there are uh, a number of significant factors that are causing all of this. The first is that we have politicians who are getting elected based on fear and by stirring up anger, by getting people so enraged at each other that they collect votes and money. We don't have many politicians who are providing role models for how to handle disagreements. And so people are going to be naturally inclined to follow people who lead them into the darkness because they feel good in the darkness. So that's number one. Number two, people, and I think the pandemic accelerated this, have learned, have lost the ability to learn how to listen to each other. And when we stop listening to each other, we, st- we start hating each other. So that's a huge problem. Three, I think that our educational system has gone into serious decline over the last three decades. And frankly, people just are not as well educated as they were 30 years ago. And when there is ignorance, there tends to be a reversion in thinking and discerning truth from falsity and tending to go tribal. So I think all of these factors combined have led to this polarization and anger and rage that we're now witnessing. I see people, I'm in Dallas, but it's going around the country, getting out in traffic over some the slightest um, thing and having gunfights. Right. It's something you would have only expected in the past that gangbangers might do in traffic to right. each other. And what's going on is as a, as a result of all of these three factors that I'm talking about, people have a reduced sense of identity. And when they feel that their identity is threatened or disrespected and they don't have good emotional competency, they're going to react like six-year-olds. The problem is that now they have weapons. And regardless of your stance on weapons, human beings, I've got a long talk about this, but human, human beings 
used to not be able to kill each other. I mean, thousand years ago, or uh, say 10,000 years ago, if you wanted to kill somebody, you had to sneak up on them while they were asleep and smash them with a rock. That took a lot of work. And so human beings never evolved the biological restraint that every other species on the planet has. There is very little intraspecies killing going on. Wolves don't kill wolves. Coyotes don't kill coyotes. Only humans kill humans. And part of that is evolutionary biology. We don't have fangs. We don't have claws. We, so we never developed the biological restraints that exist with other species of animals. And as we, our, we, our technology developed, we have found really more and more ways to kill each other <laughs> more efficiently. And there's no biological restraint that keeps us from doing that unless there are societal restraints. And right now, with the, with the polarization in politics, basically the guardrails have come off. And so people think that it's okay to act out and to, to succumb to their rage and basically kill each other. You know, there's this phrase that I've, I've seen. It seems like it's caught fire in the vernacular of, you disrespected me. My wife is a school teacher. She hears it constantly, particularly from the boys at the middle school level. Mm-hmm. That's something I used to kind of just hear in prison. Where, how has this exploded? Well, like I said, I think that it's a combination of no role models for people to follow, low educational levels, that people aren't being taught well in school, and so they tend to be ignorant, and people are not listening to each other. And you couple that with no tools to handle conflict because they can't listen and they haven't learned how to negotiate and they haven't learned how to deal with their differences, they're going to revert back to primal behavioral programming, which is violence. And because there's no limitation on the amount of violence that we can impose on each other, people get killed and the kids get fed of all of this violence all the time on the internet and through the media and through film. And so they begin to believe that the only solution to an interpersonal problem or conflict is through violence. And that's what they learn. I always tell people murderers are not born, they're bred. And when we teach our kids by not teaching them, they're going to they're going to revert to the lowest mean, which is violence. And you're trying to teach this in the prison system where you know my experience has been in in Texas in the past it could be a very violent violent place. If you didn't keep them separated, what, what, are you, what are you teaching there that's working? In the Prison of Peace Project, which is now around the world, we teach long-term and life inmates how to become peacemakers and mediators to stop prison violence. And we do this through a very rigorous curriculum that my co-founder, Laurel Coffer, and I have developed over, now it's going on 14 years based on our experience as professional peacemakers and mediators and our study of human conflict. And we have successfully deployed this program across the United States, primarily in California, but also in other states and in Europe. And as long as we have the support of the prison authorities, we have seen dramatic decreases in yard violence on the yards where we have taught prison of peace. And the very first skill that we teach 
is a listening skill that allows you to, to calm any angry person in 90 seconds or less. That's the foundation of our program. All right, well, the story is that I'm a lawyer. I was a hardcore trial lawyer, civil trial lawyer, not criminal lawyer, civil trial lawyer for 22 years through a series of events that I won't bore you with. I decided that I couldn't be a trial lawyer anymore, and I went back to school and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and complex studies, and I left the practice of law in 2000 to become a peacemaker. One of the things that I did not learn was how to calm an angry person. And, but I had been studying neuroscience for years because I understood that all conflict and peace originates in the human brain. So I was in a very difficult conflict in 2005, and I had no idea how to help these people get out of their conflict and find peace. And the thought came to me, it was really an epiphany, listen to the emotions. And when I have them start listening to the emotions of each other and not their words, it, it was miraculous. Within a couple of hours, they had not only settled the case, this happened to be a divorce couple, they got, out, they got up and left the room holding hands and having lunch with each other. And at the beginning of the process, if there had been knives on the table, there would have been blood on the floor, literally. So I knew what I'd done. I couldn't believe it. I started testing it in other conflicts, and I got the same results. Then in 2007... Matthew Lieberman, a neuroscientist at UCLA, released a brain scanning study that showed what happens in the brain when you engage in this process called affect labeling. And what his brain scanning studies show is when you label somebody's emotions, when you tell them actually what they are feeling, the emotional centers of the brain are inhibited. And at the same time, the executive function of the brain in the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is activated. And the process literally takes 90 seconds, and you can take any raging, insanely mad person and calm them down in a minute and a half. And once I had the science to explain the experience that I, I had, I started refining the skills until it is where it is today. And in fact, the, the acid test is what we, in the Prison of Peace Project, as I said, the foundational skill we teach our inmates on the very first day of the program is how to listen to and reflect somebody else's emotions. And it's very simple. Ignore the words, read the emotions, reflect back the emotions with a use statement. When you master that skill, you will never have a fight or argument again in your life, no matter who you are, whether you're a convicted murderer or just a person out on the street. Are there physical cues they're trying to, to read? Can you enlighten me a little more here? The first thing you want to do is ignore the words, because if you listen to the words, you're going to get triggered. So we don't want to get triggered when somebody's spitting it in our face, screaming at us. So we just, just make it white noise. Then the second step is to learn how to read emotions. And our brains are hardwired to do this. through evolu There's a whole set of information around evolutionary biology about how we develop the ability to read emotions. 94% of all human communication is nonverbal. Only, only 6%, 7% is involving words. So we can afford to not listen to the words for 90 seconds and just listen to the emotions. And there's a technique for learning how to do that. And then we reflect the emotional experience that the person is having by simply telling them what they're feeling. So I would say, Robert, man, you are really pissed off. You're angry. You're frustrated. You feel completely disrespected. You feel ignored and not heard. You feel like 
you're being treated unfairly and you're completely unappreciated and unsupported. And you're worried and concerned and anxious. You're sad because nobody's connecting to you and you feel unhappy and upset. And Robert, you feel really abandoned and all alone and rejected and completely betrayed. And you feel unloved and unlovable. Just doing that causes the emotional centers of the brain to inhibit and the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex to activate. You'll get four autonomic responses. You're going to be looking for a nodding of the head, yes, up and down, a verbal response like, yeah, a dropping of the shoulders, and a sigh of relief. All involuntary, unconscious relaxation responses that show that the brain has been completely calmed. And at that point in time, you can engage in whatever you need to engage in. Maybe it's problem solving. Maybe it's negotiation. Maybe it's nothing at all. Maybe it's apology. It really depends on the context and the circumstance. But at that point in time, that person feels deeply listened to and validated. I call it listening another person into existence. And we have watched, we have well not watched, we have heard stories of our students, incarcerated students, stopping gang riots in violent prisons using these skills. Extremely powerful. I'll also say this, of the 800, we have 800 of our incarcerated students who have been released on parole in California in the last 14 years. Not one of them is reoffended. Zero recidivism. And the reason is, when you learn these skills, you change who you are as a human being. One of the things I've noticed in my time inside prison, talking to inmates, was there was many of they're missing a cognitive skills. They don't even seem to be aware that there's a consequence for their actions. Do you address this kind of thing as well? We do, but we're very careful not to judge or criticize or condemn our students. In fact, in many cases, we don't even know why they're in prison. We, and we really don't want to know. We just right. take the people where they're at. They learn themselves the skills, the cognitive skills that allow them to change and transform as human beings. Because one of the, one in the more advanced training, one of the things that we talk about is how do you morally re-engage somebody who's morally disengaged? And that come, that came out of a chapter in my third book, Elusive Peace, where I talk about how do you mediate evil? So when we teach them that and we teach them self-reflection and we teach them how to emotionally self-regulate, all part of the training we engage in, they go through a growth process and they come to realize all of the problems that they had in their past lives that led them into prison in the first place. There's not one person who's in prison who is not deeply emotionally abused. And they start recognizing that and they get, and as they recognize it on their own, they start then processing it. And then as they become peacemakers and mediators, they start seeing the same behaviors and patterns in their peers on a prison yard, and now they have the tools to start addressing it and helping other people resolve conflict without violence. And that changes them inside themselves. You're teaching kind of face-to-face skills. What about when people are in cars, something is with that barrier between them, and they're reacting? I mean, I, I tell my friends, look, practice some stoicism, you know, just ignore <laughs> it. Just, it really is so small. Somebody cut you off, so what? So what happens when we're cut off is that that can be an emotional trigger. And the emotional trigger was programmed into us probably in childhood, probably by being not 
well-connected to her parents being disrespected. And so our, our knee-jerk reaction is rage because that's a protective mechanism we learned as children. And if we don't take the time to recognize our triggers and get rid of them, reprogram ourselves, then we're, we're totally at the mercy of our unconscious scripts that were developed by us to protect us in childhood, but were never deprogrammed in adulthood. And now we're adults and we have some agency and we're just, we're basically walking time bombs unless we take the time to learn how to reprogram ourselves. One of the things we do with our incarcerated students is we spend a whole day teaching them about triggers and how to deprogram their own triggers so that we're there, when they're mediating a, an intense conflict, they don't get sucked into the conflict vortex. They can remain out of it calm, cool, and compassionate. And they can also understand why the conflict arose in the first place, because they can see the triggering effects of various behaviors that happen not only in prison, but outside of prison. So it's a skill that has to be developed. And as I said earlier, these skills are not taught. Educators, in fact, are completely uninterested in teaching these skills. And these skills are not taught in families because families don't know what they're doing. Uh, there was a great psychologist and therapist back in the 1970s and early 80s, a woman by the name of Virginia Satir, very famous in her time. And she, she made the quote, 94% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. And then somebody on her heels said, and the other 6% are lying. And it's true. Our families are emotionally dysfunctional. And so part of the problem we have is that we have this idea of the nuclear family and everything holy comes out of the family when, in fact, nothing holy comes out of the family. Most families abuse their children. They don't even know they're doing it. And they create this vicious intergenerational cycle of from the extreme with people who end up in prison to just being ordinarily dysfunctional. And in between the, the kind of things we see with road rage, that's all based on childhood programming that occurs because parents themselves are emotionally incompetent. Not that they're at fault for that. It's just they were never trained any better than their parents. And they pass on the same thing generation to generation. And we can break the cycle. And so it's not just a behavior that suddenly emerges in adulthood. It's been cooking and percolating. That's right. And it's, it's aggravated. When you've got open carry laws and people can be in their truck or their car and pull a pistol off the seat and take it and shoot somebody on impulse, you have low impulse control because you're not well educated, because you haven't developed yourself emotionally, you're emotionally incompetent, and you have the ability to act on impulse with violence. You pull the gun up and shoot somebody, and that's how we get to where we are today. You know, I know uh, criminal prosecutors here that they can carry, but they don't. Because they're like, you know, I don't want something in traffic or risk temper or something. So they don't. Well, prosecutors are well-educated people. They're lawyers. And, but that, that's not like everybody else. I mean, imagine somebody who's got barely has a high school education and didn't even do well in high school, has got a, a weak male identity because they're kind of going nowhere with their lives. And they bolster their identity by being macho and masculine, and they got to prove themselves all the time that they're tough and mean, and they're actually not tough and mean, they're actually weak, and they don't have any strong skills. So that gun there is the way that they can prove to everybody else that, look, don't mess with me or I'll shoot you. And that's, that's a mentality that's growing and growing and growing, and it's sick and it's wrong. 
And it's a complete failure of our society and a complete failure of our political system and a complete failure of our educational system. Biologically, we are not prepared to inhibit our own worst impulses. And without gun control, we will exercise no impulse control and start shooting people. And that's why you're seeing all of this going on. There's no impulse control. People aren't even, they're not thinking about the consequence. Prison is not a deterrent to these people. Crime is not a deterrent to these people. They're not even thinking about it. They just get enraged. They pull up the gun, they shoot. And of course, they have to pay consequences if they're caught. But I can guarantee you that a jail time or prison time was not processing through their head when they got angry and acted out of impulse. Do you see this psychology as a factor in the uh, we, so many mass shootings today Absolutely. with young men? Well, the thing that's interesting about one of the things that's really interesting about the mass shootings is there's been some really strong neuroscience at looking at the brains of these mass murders with brain scans and PET scans, all the different kinds of scanning technology. And they all show the same kind of physiological deficiencies. I mean, it's amazing to look at the brain of a gunman, young gunman, look at that brain compared to a normal brain, and then compare the gunman's brain to other gunman's brains. And they all show the same deficiencies. So it is a function of brain deficiency. You can call it mental illness. I don't like that term. But there are physiological differences between mass murderers and other people. And there are physiological similarities between mass murderers. You see the same kind of, the same kind of brain structure in mass murderers across the board, which is really fascinating. So again, this is, this is all predictable. And in fact, there's science right now that allows us to predict whether a two-year-old can potentially become a mass murderer in 10 or 15 years. People don't want that science because, you know, obviously we don't, we don't want to be judging two-year-olds as to whether or not they're going to be a mass murderer or not, but it's that predictable. Well, it would tell us about how to nurture them. Exactly. But again, I mean, there are too many people in this country who think that that's socialism to go in or, you know, the, the, the government has no business in working with families that are dysfunctional. Because they, assume, they don't assume that families are dysfunctional. They assume families are functional when they're not. Do you see this issue among women as well? Yes, but not as much. I mean, I've worked in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world. That's, that's where we started. And you, you see that it's the same behaviors. They're just not women. For, for a lot of different reasons, they're just not quite as many women who succumb to this kind of impulse as men do. And I think that's cultural. Well, where do you hope that the project will go? Well, the prison project is going to be expanding. We're already like we're in 15 California prisons, prisons in Connecticut. We've got 15 prisons in Greece, a prison in northern Italy. We're going to have a startup in Denmark. Over the pandemic, we videotaped the entire curriculum. So we filmed it with a Hollywood film crew. So now we're able to subtitle it and offer the curriculum anywhere in the world. This year, we are testing the deployment of this curriculum uh, in California prisons to figure out what are the best ways to deploy this. And the next year, we're going to be um, hoping that it will be deployed not only across the United States in 
prisons in each jurisdiction, but also uh, around the world. And so we hope that, you know, sometime in the not so distant future, prison of peace will be a staple of, of every penal institution. And are you a nonprofit? We're a nonprofit, 501c3, yes. So you're not taking money from these states? We get grants. Uh, we're yeah. primarily funded in California by the Department of Re- Rehabilitation and Correct, uh, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. We have had. We've also been privately funded by some family family funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Connecticut project is funded by a family foundation, a significant amounts of money. And so, you know, we've been able to do a lot with a little, and that's that's how we operate. Well, our prison system used to be called TDC, Texas Department of Corrections. I have to tell you, I really never saw anything rehabilitative or corrective about it. Do you see any systems out there that are? Not in the United States. The United States has a weirdly strong desire for retributive justice. What's interesting about retributive justice is the victims never feel like they're getting justice. Um, if you watch, for example, if you watch a, a video interview of a victim survivor who has watched the execution of a murderer who killed a family member, you will never see them yippy, skippy, happy, joyous. It's always somber. And they'll always say platitudes like, well, Carol can sleep in peace knowing that justice has been given by the execution of this evil person. But when the victim survivor is saying that, they are not happy. And there is no justice in retributive justice, especially when the state is the victim, state of Texas versus state of Mm -hmm. California versus Mm -hmm. the true victims never really get justice. So that's the first big problem. The second is that unlike almost every other country in the world, the United States has the death penalty and, and has life sentences. I think in Europe, if I'm not mistaken, the longest sentence that anybody could ever serve in Europe for any crime is 25 years and there is no death sentence. It's a completely different way of looking at the societal problem of crime. And I think we were long overdue for rethinking our approach to crime and criminal behavior here in the United States. I'll just say this, for my conservative friends, I'm an independent, I'm not Republican, I'm not Democrat, but just so you can understand the magnitude of the problem, here in California, we spend as much money on prisons as we spend on our entire higher educational system, 15 to $17 billion a year. Where's the sense in that? What would justice look like for a victim? taking your approach. I, in my experience, having mediated over 150 or 200 criminal cases between victims and offenders, what I have experienced is that when victims feel like they've been heard and listened to, and offenders have truly listened to the impact of their offense and harm and injury on the victim, that's when we begin to see healing occur. And that's the only time I've seen people feel like they really have had some justice. They've been heard, they've been listened to, they've been dealt with respectfully, and their voice mattered. That does not happen in the litigated retributive justice system. Well, and you know, we have changes in the law here where it's sentencing the victims, the victim's family can speak out, but it's usually full of anger. And frankly, the the convicted, the offender has got a who cares? Screw you attitude as well. Well, that's right. Because, and the part, of, part of the problem with our system, I mean, it, it, it creates, the, our system creates a really interesting 
dichotomy or conflict, because on the one hand, to invoke constitutional rights, you have to say not guilty. Now that forces the burden of proof onto the state to prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. But at the same time, it forces an offender to lie. And so now they are living this lie, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty. And and so now they can't possibly take responsibility for mm-hmm, a crime mm-hmm. because they've been told, say you're not guilty. And I recognize the importance of our constitutional rights, but I also recognize the social problem of not being allowed to take accountability and 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 make reparations for a crime. And it's a big problem. Not an easy one to solve. I'm not going to solve it. Oh, no. Personally, I've always felt that the prison system in Texas is one giant monument to failure of the education system here. I would, I would agree with that. And I would add it's also a failure of how we, how we help families grow children. You know, if we taught parents how to be emotional coaches for their children and every parent learned how to listen to their children and learned how to become an emotional coach for both themselves, the parents, and also for their children, we wouldn't have prisons in 20 years. What are the chances of this eventually being taught in in the public school system? Right now, slim next to zero. And the reason for that is because our educational system is based on the myth of rationality. It's based on the idea that what separates us human beings from other species of animals is rational thinking. And it's a myth. There is no science to support that. We are not rational beings. In fact, there is no such thing as rationality. I teach a graduate course at Pepperdine University called Decision Making Under Stress and Uncertainty. And the first thing I ask my graduate students to do is define rationality. And none of them can do it. And the reason is there is no definition of rationality that works. None. Zero. What neuroscience is teaching us is that we are emotional beings. What separates us from all other species is emotions. We are the only species on the planet with emotions. No other, no other species have emotions. They have affect, which is something different than emotion. All emotion is based on affect, but only we have emotions. Every decision we make is an emotional decision. And in fact, that decision is made 750 milliseconds before we're even aware that we've made the decision which is getting into some really interesting discussions around whether or not we actually operate under free will. And there are many, many, many neuroscientists who say, no, there is no such thing as free will. So these are all really interesting concepts that have profound implications in law and policy and government. But the fact of the matter is that because educators are based on rational thinking or so-called rational thinking, and not on emotions and not on neuroscience, they are loath to change. And so they are not going to change. How do you recommend that individual person in a situation kind of step back and not let the emotions overtake them? Learn how to label your own emotions. So before I labeled you, Robert, if I were to sit, and I am, when we get into situations where we're going, we're triggered, we immediately take a breath and say, well, let me just give you an example. And this is how I cured some of my triggers. Imagine that you're in a parking lot and it's pouring rain and it's December 24th and you've got to run into the mall and grab one last gift. And you've been waiting to get into this, a parking stall. Somebody pulls out 
and you're about to pull in and some guy in his big dually pickup truck with a big gun rack and guns on the back pulls in in front of you. He sees you waiting there. He knows you've been waiting, but he pulls in and just takes the spot, violating all social norms around queuing and waiting and being patient and waiting your turn. All right. There are a couple of different ways that you can handle that. One is to get really pissed off. But the other is to say, God dang it. I am so angry and pissed off at this guy. What a complete jerk. I feel completely disrespected. I feel completely ignored. I feel like I'm nothing in front of this guy. And I'm really, really angry. In fact, I'm enraged. And I'm anxious because I got to get in the store and it's five o'clock on Christmas Eve and I got to get home. And so I'm feeling a lot of time pressure. And I'm a little embarrassed about all of this. And I'm sad because this guy obviously must be living a miserable life for him to have to hog in front of everybody else. He's clearly suffering. So I can have compassion for him. And it's okay that he took the spot because he has a life of misery and I have a life of joy. Okay. And that's how you do it. Just like that. Yeah. Makes sense. It works. I mean, I've got the neuroscience to prove it. Well, I'm like, it's not worth it getting out in a gun battle and ending up in jail either. I know what jail, I know what prison looks like. It never is. Mm-hmm. It never is. But we need to do a better job of teaching people emotional self-control. And that's not something we're talking about. Can you recommend for the audience any books they can read for the layperson? My fourth book came out in 2017, Simon & Schuster. It's called De-Escalate. How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. You can get it on Amazon for 13 bucks. It's audio and printed. I've seen it on the bookstands and I never bought it. I'm sorry, yeah. but I am now. I'm That's take okay. A yeah, yeah, it's in five different languages. So if you don't speak English, you can probably find a language that you can, can speak. Well, um, I want my kids to read it. And I need to get my, my wife needs to get it in front of her students. Because there right. is something going on out there that hasn't right. been going on. That's right. If you if people are interested in learning more, I've got a lot of YouTube videos up. But the one video that will really show you especially how to work with children is called How to Calm an Angry Child in 30 Seconds. And just put Google that, How to Calm an Angry Child in 30 Seconds. And that little 10-minute video will show you everything you need to know okay. about how to read and, and calm an angry child. Doug Noll, that's the last word. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll put links to your book and resources in the uh, podcast. And feel free to reach out to us anytime. Thank you, Robert. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. A recurring theme in my past stories has been the impact of the lockdown on people's emotions during the COVID pandemic. Plus, there's the loss of civility in American politics. As you may know from a previous episode, I worked as a congressional staffer in the early 1970s, and later in the 1980s, I covered the administration of President Ronald Reagan and Congress as a reporter. Today, those institutions look like an alien from outer space to me. You can't insult people and then expect them to vote for your legislation. Politics used to be the art of compromise, but now it's a blood sport. I can tell you this, Having worked on a defense committee with a top secret security clearance and as a reporter covering wars and national security, our adversaries love what's happening to our democracy and they are chipping away at it because at the end of the day, they want our wealth. 
They want our stuff. Are we going to just give it all away? You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter Podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting.